0: At a time like now, with, with what seems to be chaos in earthly governments, um, what a rich promise of one whose, whose rule will be perfect, uh, will, accomplish, um, will accomplish God's righteousness, which will decide with equity, which will treat the poor with equity, um, stark contrast from all the tyrannical efforts uh, that are around us.
1: Welcome back to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 64, and I'm your host, Jared Luchabor. Thanks for tuning in. In our current Advent series, Old Testament professors Andrew Compton and Mark Vanderhart spoke last week on the coming Savior in Genesis. Now they turn their attention to Isaiah and the Prophets.
0: Isaiah and, and his prophecies about the coming Messiah have always um, have always loomed large at this time of year, and appropriately so. So uh, we'll look at a few passages in these opening chapters of Isaiah, which have um, which have been very rich. Uh, do you have any thoughts before we even dive into some of the details of, of these chapters? Any any initial any initial thoughts that come to mind, Mark? Uh, well,
2: just broadly speaking, you have. Uh, in chapters 1 through 39, where the focus is upon the historical circumstances of Isaiah's day, uh, there you, the focus is upon a Davidic ruler.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And from chapter 40 on, the suffering servant begins to loom large, which is more of a priestly figure. And uh, they're not to be played off against each other, but sure. I think it underscores the very nuanced but also very rich revelation that Isaiah gives to the coming of the king priest the messiah
0: and Isaiah is such a a theologically rich prophet to begin with i mean not that the other prophets are somehow not as theological but there's just a, such a sustained um set of images and themes that that show up throughout the book um it's it's rightly uh, cited as much as it is by the New Testament writers or alluded to by the New Testament writers.
2: Indeed, because if you look at the quotations in the New Testament of the Old Testament books that are either cited or uh, clearly alluded to, the books that stand out the most are Genesis, mm-hmm. Deuteronomy, a book of the law, mm-hmm. uh, the Psalms, yep. a collection of Israel's worship, and then Isaiah, the, the rich uh, prophet.
0: Isaiah seven is of course one of these very uh, very famous passages. I mean the the, the verse that uh, that comes well, it's often I guess cited uh, right from the get go is the sign uh, of Emmanuel. Uh, starting at verse ten, I'll, I'll just read these. Um, uh, we read in uh, Isaiah seven verse ten again. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, uh, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shoal or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here's these uh, key verses. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day when Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Of course, I read on a little bit, but that shows how we have this kind of broad historical context of, of King Ahaz dealing with the Syro-Ephraimite coalition uh, coming to wage war on Judah. Uh, and, and Ahaz, you know... he it would almost seem as though he's being, being pious here, saying, well, I will not ask and put the Lord to the, to, you know, I will not ask for a sign. But actually, no, that was a sign of faithlessness. God said, well, here's the sign you'll get. But but significant, the sign given for this particular event in history is that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son whose name is Emmanuel. And that's a fulfillment
2: of what, again, in context is what God said in verses 4 through 9, before the passage Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. uh, Professor Compton read, namely, uh, these two enemies of Judah, uh, Assyria and Israel, trying to create this, uh, shall we say, Palestinian or uh, land of Canaan resistance to the Assyrians, Mm -hmm. they will be destroyed, Uh, they will be removed. And then it's in that context that Isaiah challenges Ahaz to ask for a sign.
0: You know, and and it, it, it there's a lot of of course there's a lot of debate with regard to this passage, as is often the case with biblical scholarship. Um, on the one hand, scholars who do not have a uh, belief in the supernatural uh, challenge this idea of the virgin conceiving, and uh, suggest, oh well, the the language here does not necessarily mean virgin. Therefore, its its relationship to the New Testament uh, with Mary is an accidental one, or this is maybe a an effort of the New Testament writers to kind of um, add meaning that was not intended by Isaiah. Yet there, there's there been a lot of uh, discussion, while Christians have wrestled with this and given answers to this objection, I think, for many centuries. Um, certainly the Septuagint seemed to uh, to render this in in a way that that led to uh, the translation of virgin but even other hebrew words available would have left things too ambiguous Th- this hebrew word alma that was uh, that was used helps to highlight that this is an unmarried woman and yet a woman who is with child now some have said well maybe maybe she's with child in an immoral way she's with child out of wedlock uh, except that itself would sort of cut against the grain of the passage and it seems very clear that that we have this supernatural uh, conception of a child being described. This virgin actually is with child, which is which is staggering uh, in itself.
2: Yeah, the word uh, that is used in the Hebrew there is, as Professor Compton said, it refers to a sexually mature but unmarried woman, and therefore virginity is implied. Mm-hmm. Though. Uh, the woman's virginity is not the focus of this particular sign and the p- particular focus of the prophecy. Right. It is a clearly present overtone. And mm-hmm. therefore, when the Septuagint uses the word parthenos, referring to uh, virgin, it is not mistranslating, but picking up on a nuance, which in God's providence sets the stage for how it is used in Matthew 1.
0: And even with that, it does seem, you know, it's easy for for those of us who work in biblical studies and are used to answering objections to to the scriptures to we can easily zero in on that and yet the passage really is driving us toward this particular son and his name. His name is called Emmanuel. Now, here's our here's our one of these great compound Hebrew words full of a full of so much um uh, so why every Hebrew student loves learning these prepositions, right? We have the, the preposition im, or with, uh, and then anu, meaning us. It's that it's that suffixed uh, uh, form, imanu, with us, and then is el, meaning God. So literally, God is with us. Mm-hmm. And here's the, the great significance. Um, it is truly significant that we have this virgin uh, conceiving and bearing a son, but but. But the chief element is that uh, this son truly is, God is with us.
2: Yes, and that therefore becomes the sign uh, in Ahaz's day Mm -hmm. that uh, God is still with his people, but uh, it is out of the wreckage of David's house that God will raise up a more uh, powerful son of David, Uh, through the virgin birth, but it is a sign that already spoke in Ahaz's day. We don't have to neglect history when we read uh, Mm. prophecies, especially when they say that the child will be at an age uh, when the enemies of Judah will be destroyed.
0: It's interesting to think if if a son was actually born at this time, and does that somehow... Uh, does that somehow fulfill the prophecy already? So that the gospel writers are are, uh, are are trying to reemploy something that's already been fulfilled. Of course, that's that's objected by critics. Well, this this would have been a son in Isaiah's day, mm-hmm. um, and yet typology enables even any purported son who may have been born at this time. Um, you know, a, a virgin who may have conceived then. Uh, still we're awaiting a, a greater fulfillment of truly the one born of the virgin. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I'm, I i do not know the full background and what arguments have been made. It seems to me uh, unlikely that a virgin had actually conceived in Isaiah's day, but rather the giving of this sign pointed to that true giving uh, the, the true time when a virgin would conceive. I don't know if I'm missing something on that. That's, that's quite likely, but, uh, But certainly, Matthew in particular zeroes in on this, right? After giving his his lengthy genealogy, um, shows that, look, whatever may have happened in Isaiah's day, it is Christ who uniquely fulfills God's promise to be with us. Matthew one twenty two, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, there's a not only that but just a few short chapters later in Isaiah we read more about this naming uh, an, an important giving of names to one uh, to this child this son who would be given uh, here we find um a lengthy section i can start reading in uh, in Isaiah 9 uh, i'll start in um well, i'll just start in 9 verse 1 but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish The rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here's the key verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called, here's another naming, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I remember I was tasked in a Sunday school program as a kid to recite this verse. I don't know if I actually made it through. I think it got stage fright. So,
2: Well, now you can improve on that.
0: Well, yeah. I, I, they had just let me sit in a room with the with a headset on and a microphone and read this, that would have been a fine Sunday school program. But anyway, what a rich passage there. Again, to us, a child is born, a son is given, but, but his names that are given... Actually, there's, there's debates here. Uh, Jewish scholars have long pushed back against the implications of this. Here's a child um, whose name is not only Wonderful Counselor, but specifically Mighty God. It's interesting how the the Jewish Publication Society's translation of, of the Tanakh uh, reads this verse this way. It says, He has been named the mighty God is planning grace, the eternal Father, a peaceable ruler. You can really hear how that's, that's pulled the predication of these things to the child, pulled it away, instead making this name sort of reflective of God. Um, E.J. Young, many years ago, even said that many have refused to see the import of these glorious names, and I I think that's what's happening there. But what can we say about this this incredible naming?
2: Well, it's four names, uh, each composed of two words, and in the original some of those words are actually glued together, so to speak. A wonderful counselor is one who has uh, the wisdom, Uh, wonderful is often used to refer to uh, miraculous signs and powers. But he has insight into God's word, into God's plan, that goes way beyond anything that any human being would would have. And we see that in Jesus' ministry again and again. He astonished the crowds as Mm -hmm. one who's taught as having authority, a counselor that was far superior to the scribes and Pharisees of his day. And um, was able to take Old Testament truths and Old Testament passages and to see in them implications that were truly there, but the teachers of Jesus' day missed. Uh, I think of when Jesus confronts Nicodemus. You are Mm. the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this. Mm -hmm. He was truly a wonderful counselor, and wonderful on many levels. And one example of that is that we read in the New Testament that those who were, should we say, immoral uh, people— Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes heard him gladly.
1: Hmm. Uh,
2: They didn't listen to the traditional teachers of Israel gladly, but they heard Jesus gladly. He was a wonderful
0: counselor. It's interesting, too. There's even uh, other places where this language of of wonderful and even paired with counselor um, occurs in fairly high index. In Judges 13, 17 uh, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? wonderful. indeed." And Isaiah twenty-eight, twenty-nine. this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Mm-hmm. So you really get that explicit connection with wisdom, which if we have a few moments to talk about Isaiah 11, we'll also see that that uh, that how Jesus fulfills the the promise of a coming sage, for a, a coming wise man. But but again, he's a wonderful counselor. It's interesting that he's he's um, of course called mighty God. That's a pretty explicit predication of his divinity. And mm-hmm. I think the church is rightly recognized that Christ is is true true God. Um, it's interesting though that he's he's termed everlasting Father. Right away, the, uh, the you, you can imagine a bit of confusion for somebody saying, but wait. Jesus is not the father. The father is the father. Christ is the son. Uh, I think there's a there's there's been a recognition that there is this pattern of divine fatherhood, sort of a royal a royal way of thinking of of uh, of kingly patronage over his subjects that's more in view here rather than a predication of the person uh, of the father upon the son. I don't know if you have your thoughts right. on
2: that. No, exactly. There is not this is not a paragraph from technical Christian theology, where we discuss the Trinity and the the appropriate names and titles and properties of the uh, persons of the Trinity. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. A father was a protector, as a king was the protector of his his people, of his nation. Mm -hmm. Jesus certainly, when he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, uh, implied as that is that everlasting fatherness. Namely, he would be there to sustain oversee provide for his people
0: in all things father in that sense mhm finally of course the the prince of peace i mean the that in fact, that's uh, what what more uh, we, we could spend all day perhaps speaking about the peace that was accomplished by christ in his in his earthly ministry and his death and his resurrection um, but but what a, uh, again, what a rich promise, all of this coming into Isaiah's day, but exploding well beyond it into our own day.
2: Yeah, the word for peace there is shalom. And sometimes I've tried to point out when we use the word peace in our modern day, we, we don't have a lot of positive content to it. What we mean is, well, there's no war at the moment. Mm-hmm. Usually mankind is at war with each other. And so when there's a ceasefire or some treaty is signed we say well now there's peace. But that's sort of a a negative way to look at what peace is. Positively peace is prosperity, it's well-being, it's wholeness. And when Jesus came into this world, he came to proclaim the presence of the kingdom, he taught what that meant, but then the shalom, the well-being of it is brought about by creation Christ's miraculous work. He came in order to undo the horrific damage Mm. on many levels that sin and Satan brought. So the blind see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the dead are raised, the demon possessed have those demons uh, exorcised, chased away, uh, so that times of prosperity begin to come back. That too is the work of the Messiah.
0: And isn't isn't that this incredible thing for this time of year where we're looking at how Isaiah is already prophesying about the coming of Christ. And yes, there's this, this language of divinity uh, and, and yet, uh, and, and, but language of divine presence, Emmanuel language of, of the accomplishing of peace of Shalom and realizing that when we, when we gather together and we celebrate at this time of year at Christmas and, uh, and we prepare in these, uh, in, in these weeks before, um, we are anticipating nothing less than that, than this cosmic new creation, this, n- this new creation shalom, new creation peace that Christ accomplishes, and the fact that God himself does dwell with us um, in, uh, in the person of the Son.
2: Beyond the four names, verse 7 uh, in the English text says that the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end will keep going until it fills the entire cosmos. Mm -hmm. But it will be the Davidic kingdom. Yeah, It will be the Davidic kingdom, and it will be universal. It will be over all, and it will establish true justice and righteousness. Zeal of the Lord Yahweh will accomplish this. What a stark contrast that is to the kingdoms of this world, Mm -hmm. where if you become a ruler, you either uh, use the power... Invested in you by by governments for your own benefit, for the benefit of your own political party, or to line your pocket, corruption seems to be the order of the day in so many governments. And yet, the the government of Christ, the heavenly commonwealth, mm-hmm. is filled with justice and righteousness.
0: And if we want to save in a few words about Isaiah eleven, that that righteous reign, that righteous kingdom, is 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 even. Expressed it all the more, and even those cosmic implications in in Isaiah eleven, um, you know, starting in in verse six, verses six to nine, you know, the, the the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the wild goat, like all things are now uh, righted. Um, right, shalom is 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 in its fullness and its greatness here, all because. Of this one, eleven verse one, there shall come forth from the shoot of, uh, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And and we have this one: the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes. By what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Boy, at a time like now with with what seems to be chaos in earthly governments, um, what a rich promise of one whose whose rule will be perfect, uh, will accomplish... um, will accomplish God's righteousness, which will decide with equity, which will treat the poor with equity. Um, stark contrast from all the tyrannical efforts uh, that are around us. The
2: beauty of this passage is, again, um, how the Messiah accomplishes peace. You think of Ephesians 2, where through his, his own blood, the middle walls of partition come down, And that those who are near and those who are far are now brought together, thus creating one new man. And Jesus, when he hears in John 12 of Greeks who want to see him, he says, Now the Son of Man shall be lifted up, Hmm. and in that being lifted up, his cross, he will draw all men to himself. And that ties in with the serpent on the pole Hmm. in the book of Numbers. When people looked to that serpent, they were healed. And John quotes that then in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man uh, will be lifted up. And Paul says, in preaching Christ crucified, you're lifting him up. And that, that is the power of the kingdom of God the removal of sin, but then with it, the giving of the Holy Spirit to bring people who are now at each other's throats, distant and separated
0: together in one kingdom. Wonderful reflections for this time of year. It's uh, certainly a time when we're thankful for the salvation we have, but Isaiah has has just thrust our vision to the horizon for greater cosmic accomplishment than we ever could have imagined.
1: For our final episode on Advent, our Old Testament brothers actually look at the New Testament and the songs of Mary, Zechariah, and Simeon. It will also be our last episode before we take a break in January as we prepare excellent content for you, our listeners, for the coming year in 2021. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu on YouTube and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor, and I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. Till next time.